This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been with us the past uh, couple months, um, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're still in chapter 5, and um, you know, what is the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' famous teachings about the values and the character of God's kingdom. And we said, you know, I believe last week that whenever an administrator, administration comes in, um, it comes in with its own policies, its own values, um, and uh, it executes its own policies. But as one administration departs and, and is replaced by another administration, that new administration comes with its new set of policies, its own values, and its own people. And that's what Jesus does. You know, if you look at the course of Matthew from 1 to 5, he's actually calling his disciples, they're his new administrators, and then he's teaching them and bringing in his new sets of policies. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is, really, from chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. And if you, if you were here a few weeks ago, we looked at murder. And Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder. You know, in other words, it's not enough to just not murder. Because he says, but I tell you, he says, I don't want you to hate anybody. I don't want you to resent anybody. We don't hate. Christians don't resent. Christians don't hate. You know, it's, it's all in there. It's all in the heart. That's what he says. Now, the interesting thing about the Sermon on the Mount that we've looked at so far is we've looked at all the negative, the do nots, do not murder, you know, do not hate, do not commit adultery, do not lust, do not divorce, you know, um, do, not, do not lie. But today, this is the first, at least in the series, it's not entirely significant, but this is the first of the series where we look at Jesus actually saying, I want you to do this. You know, and, and Jesus is saying this, you know, if you think it's enough to not murder, to not hate, it's not. The opposite of that is also being demanded of you. You know, he says, I want you to live out of love. You know, it's not enough just to hate some, to not hate somebody. I want you to actually love them too. You know, I want you to forgive them too. This is Jesus' famous teaching, you know, um, on, on love, what it means to love somebody. He says, turn the other cheek. Someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other one also. That's what he says. Why does the, Jesus teach us this radical view on relationships? And the answer is this. It's because Christianity itself, you know, begins with a radical relationship inside you know, that kind of works its way outward. That's basically what it is. It's this interconnected set of relationships. 
you know, and, and I'm going to kind of work this out. You know, on one hand, you're going to say, but it's a religion. I thought Christianity was a religion. It is. It's a religion in, in a sense. It is a faith. You know, Christianity actually is a lot of things. But at the base, it's a love that starts at the core of who you are and works its way all the way outward. It's all interconnected. You know, if you're having a difficult time loving, you've got to start, looking, you got to start by looking at the core. There's something broken at the core. You know, there's this, it's this interconnected set of radically transformed relationships that begins at the core. And this passage shows us how, then, that kind of plays out. Three things, three things. I'm going to kind of unpack these three points before I even go into the first of the points this time around, okay? Um, so it's a little bit lengthier of an explanation of these three points. A Christian is someone who's come into a radical new relationship with God. And then as a result, has a radical, transformed relationship internally, you know, with himself. And then as a result, has a radically transformed relationship with other people. Okay? Radical relationship with God, which works its way inward. Radical relationship with yourself, which then works outward. Radical relationships with people outside of you. All right? Uh, I'm going to start, I'm going to just unpack this a little bit. First, a Christian is somebody who radically... Uh, has a new radical relationship with God. And because of this new relationship with God, it creates this new, unique relationship, um, an attitude. You know, it's it's more than a self-image. This attitude towards yourself internally. So you have this vertical relationship that's healed. And as a result, you have this internal relationship that's healed or healing. And because this internal relationship is healing, it results in a unique very different attitude or relationship to people who are around you. Okay? Um, I'm going to put it another way. The gospel is good news because there's healing inside out. You know, the healing begins upward, you know, because you're able to see your sin. You know, and you see it all the way in the core. That's on one hand. But on the other hand, you see the love of God. The personal love of Jesus Christ for you. The personal love of Jesus on the cross for you. You know? And and that's going to heal you. That's going to restore you. That's going to create this new, unique relationship between you and God. There's no more war between you and God. You're not fighting God anymore. You're not running from God anymore. Your relationship with God is healing. It's a vertical healing. But that creates this new relationship with yourself. You heal as a result internally. And imagine, you know, I'm wrestling with this mic, if you can tell. I'm, like, wrestling with this thing. Um, it creates, uh, imagine if you have a disease, and this disease um, is, it results in death, you know. And, and as a result, what happens when you find out that you have this? There's no strength. You know, there's this despondency. There's depression. You know, you're completely, you're just utterly afraid. But when you find out you've been cured, that you've been healed, at first you feel weak. There's this weakness. But you know that the strength is going to come. You have courage again because you know you're free, right? You've had this disease that's going to lead to death, but you've been healed and you've been cured. And as a result, what happens? You're able to sleep again. You've got your confidence back. You've got courage back again. There's no more despondency. And, you know, why is that? Obviously, a lot has happened inside, but um, the sheer fact that you've been healed, the good news that you've been healed, 
it actually starts to heal you. And, and as a result, you know, obviously a lot has happened. A surgery has happened and taken place on the inside, but it frees you from all the damage. You know, now you can heal. And it's simply the sheer fact of hearing the news already emotionally, internally, starts to heal you on the inside. There's joy. There's hope again. There's gratitude. You can start to live out of gratitude. There's power, you see. That's what's happening. It's this inward healing that takes place. And as a result, you have new life. You feel like a new man, right? It creates new relationships with other people. You know, there's new opportunities. There, there's, uh, there's new possibilities. It all goes together. You can't just do it. You know, this is not meant to be a manual, you know, where Jesus says, you know, you have to love other people. You can't just do it. It's all interconnected. It all goes together. And to the extent, to the degree that that vertical healing has taken place, you will be able to then heal in your relationships with other people. You know, if you get the gospel, then you're going to understand, you know, this radical understanding, this radical sense uh, of, of what it means to be in relationship, to be able to walk alongside other people. So it's three very quick points, you know, upward, but I'm going to start with the inward, all right? An inward healing and outward healing as a result of this vertical upward healing. Inward, outward, then upward, okay? First, a follower of Jesus Christ has a restructured, unique attitude toward himself. There's an inward healing that takes place. Jesus goes on to give us a case study. He says, you know, here's one of the ways in which you can see how this attitude, you know, this new radically changed attitude in yourself, you know, manifests itself. That's what he says. And uh, he goes over here uh, to, verse 20, to verse 39, and he says, I want you to turn the other cheek. I want you to turn the other cheek. Now, people misunderstand this. People misunderstand this passage because when they hear that, what they hear is, you know, when someone slaps you on the face, you know, um, man, Jesus is saying, you know, turn the other cheek. That sounds like, you know, just allow injustice to happen in your life. Let people walk all over you. Um, it doesn't matter what anybody does to you. Just grin and bear it. That's what it sounds like he's saying. Let, just let them beat you up, right? You know, come on. We know that Jesus is not saying that. The reason why is because Jesus himself didn't do that. The Apostle Paul himself didn't do that. The Apostle Paul, he was a Roman citizen. And back then, you know, you're talking about the greatest empire to date. You know, he was a member of the Roman Empire. And um, when he was jailed without a trial, he was treated as a prisoner of war and jailed without a trial. He said, he stood up and he said, this is unlawful. This is illegal. He called people to account. He called the administrators to account, right? He lodged a protest. He appealed all the way to the emperor. He said, this, this is uncalled for. Jesus, when he was beaten, when he was slapped, actually, literally slapped in the trial, you know, he questioned that. He protested that. Christians are called to stand for justice. If there's an injustice done for you, you call for it. You call them to account. There's nothing sinful about that. You deal with oppression in your life. But then what does he mean then to turn the other cheek? Verse 38, he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth. And what he's doing here is he's referring to the fact that in the Old Testament, you know, um, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that was a law intended for judges. And the rule of, it was a rule of thumb for people who are in uh, civil suits, civil lawsuits. And the background goes like this. In the ancient times, you know, the ancient rules for vengeance, it was unlimited. 
In the ancient days, there was no limit to how much violence you can inflict on another person if they had done a wrong to you. It was virtually unlimited. You know, I'm going to give you an example. This is an agrarian culture, an agricultural culture, right? So if I, with my plow, hit your deer, or hit your, not, not your deer, your cow, I run over your cow, and your cow is dead. Now your cow is your livelihood, right? That's your bank account. That's your finance. You know, if I, with my plow, hit your cow, and your cow dies, you, you know, would not then say, you know what, it is, this is unlawful, I'm going to lodge a protest, I get to kill your cow as a result. That's actually not what you would do. You go and you, you know, you would basically try to kill me. That's what you would do. You're going to burn my house down. You're going to burn my farm down. You know, the laws of violence, you know, um, were virtually unlimited. And it's not too different from how we live today, but... You know, basically, you say, you know, you killed my cow, I'm going to burn your house down. <laughs> you know, if you're angry, you know, I'm going to burn your f- farm down. You poke my eyes out, I'm going to poke two of your eyes out. You know, you poke one of my eyes, I'm going to poke two of your eyes out. But Israel was called to something different. They were a different people. They were called to mercy. And so there was a limit to the extent of personal revenge you can take on another person. If you read books like by Thomas Cahill, a famous sociologist and historian, uh, contemporary religion professor, um, he wrote a book called The Gift of the Jews. He'll tell you a lot about the way Israel was so different from the uh, agrarian cultures in their society, in the world at, at that time. But the judges of Israel, they derived a very merciful rule. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. There's a limit to how much revenge you could take. That's basically what they were teaching. Um, it was this concept called lex talionis. It's a Latin term. The law of retaliation. The law of retaliation had limits. That means that the punishment should only fit the extent of the crime. You know, poetic justice, we would say. Poetic justice in a way that it would be limited. The punishment would fit the crime. And only the crime itself to the perpetrator. You know, it meant that as a country, as a society, we do not have a concept of personal revenge. We're going to limit that. There is grace, right? Restitution has to be orderly. Restitution has to be appropriate. Restitution has to be just. But here, Jesus says, as great as that is, and you need that, he says, as important as that is for building a society, you know, this should not be the way you, this is not the law that you rest on in building relationships. You may need this to build a society, to build a culture, but this is not what you personally need to use, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You don't use that rule to build relationships. He says, if you're slapped on the cheek, I want you to turn that cheek. Turn the other one. You know, we would never do that. Not in our society, not today. As evolved of a society and a culture as we are, we would never do that. Like the ancients, um, not a whole lot has changed you know, um, you know, being slapped on the cheek, what does that really mean? You know, it doesn't mean that someone's trying to kill you. It doesn't mean that someone's trying to beat you up. You know, if you try to beat somebody up, you don't slap them, you know, on the cheek. What does that mean? Even today, what does that mean? You know, you're insulting them. This is an insult. You know, to slap someone in the face is to insult them. And Jesus is clearly saying that in this shame-based culture that the Hebrews lived in, they were shame-based, you know, they were, um, they, it were, they were all about saving face. And it's basically people hated being insulted. So this is absolutely remarkable what Jesus is saying. He says when somebody insults you, you know, 
there must be no concern on your part to save face. Don't, your initial instinct is to protect yourself, to protect your honor, protect your, you know, your dignity, protect your pride, protect yourself, preserve yourself. You feel embarrassed? Sure, you have to address the wrong. Sure, you have to address the injustice. But don't react just to save face. That's basically what he's saying here. You know, when an injustice is done, you know, what do you think? You know, what do you usually say? You say, you know, who do you think you are to do what you're doing? Do you, or rather, you say, do you know what you just did? Do you know who you just hit? Do you know who you just insulted? Do you know who I am? Do you know who you are? You know, we say that, right? Wide-eyed, you know, stern face. We tend to do that. What right do you have? How dare you do this to me? You know, we're saving face. We're protecting our pride. We're protecting our dignity. That's what we're doing. You know, we're protecting our honor because we, our honor has been damaged, you know. And the way we do that is we react with violence, you know. And um, a Christian is somebody who has an attitude toward himself where he doesn't worry about his ego. He doesn't worry about his pride. He's not doing everything out of pride and out of ego to save face. He seeks justice, but justice to restore. The intent is to restore. He seeks justice but justice so that there's a ground, a truthful ground to have forgiveness. That's what he does. In verse 40, he says, somebody wants to sue you, and as a result, he takes away your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. That's what he says. What he's not saying here, you know, we mean that as, you know, if somebody steals from you and takes your wallet, you know, then you should come back and say, oh, by the way, you forgot this too. You know, like in Les Mis, the bishop, you know, he says, hey, you forgot these things as well. You know, that's not what he's saying, you know. Basically, what he's doing, he's giving you three very, very short parables, you know, the second mile, the cloak, the slapping of the other side of the face. He says those things really all mean the same thing. You know, he's saying never close the door. You've got to operate in a way that you never close the door on a relationship. Basically, by turning the other cheek, what you're saying is, I'm going to give you another opportunity to do it right. I'm going to address what you've done wrong, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to do it right. I'm going to give you a chance to reconcile with me appropriately, you know, to admit your wrongs, you know, to, uh, to seek justice appropriately. If I've done wrong to you, you seek it appropriately. I'm going to give you another opportunity to do that. By turning my face, I'm making myself vulnerable enough that either A, you're going to, you're going to punch it or you're going to slap it again, but I'm going to keep giving you an opportunity, you know, because, you know, as Tim Keller, you know, my favorite preacher, he says, because one day maybe you'll kiss it. That's what I'm giving you an opportunity to do. When somebody wrongs you, you know, there are two approaches. There's a Christian approach and there's a non-Christian approach. The non-Christian approach goes like this. You know, you don't deserve a relationship with me anymore. You've hurt me deeply. You've dishonored me. I want you to know what you did. And I want you to feel what you've done. You know, and until you felt everything that I want you to feel, you know, you can't have a relationship with me. You know, I'm not going to come after you. I'm not going to beat you up. I'm not going to punish you that way. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you feel it another way. You know, I'm going to walk away from you. I'm going I'm to, you know, reject you. You know, I'm going to protect my honor. You know, I'm going to protect my honor. I'm going to protect my ego. I'm going to protect my pride. I'm going to make sure you know that. 
I'm going to make sure you feel that. A Christian, on the other hand, goes about it like this. We never do this, right? It's remarkable. A Christian says, you know, what you did was wrong. What you did was unjust. You know, but it's, I really want justice, but not because, you know, you know, somehow that's going to reinstate my honor or reinstate my ego or build up my pride again. You know, on one hand, I'm not going to let you sin against me anymore. I won't tolerate that. But I'm going to give you an opportunity to do it right. I'm going to take it. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do it right. You want to reconcile? I want to reconcile. But I want to do it right. And true reconciliation involves justice and mercy. Justice on both sides. Mercy on both sides. Admit your failures first. I'm going to be open to that. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what he's saying. So the answer to the question, what does it mean to turn the other cheek? It means don't worry about the insult. Let it go. Let go of the insult. You know, um, you slap me on this cheek, you know, but I'm willing to provide an opportunity for you to get it right the next time around, to be vulnerable again. That's why I'm turning the other cheek. That's what Jesus is saying. You know, a Christian has that inner attitude, that attitude within himself, you know, without enabling justice, you know, injustice to himself, you know, without letting the person walk all over him, without letting the person, without becoming a doormat, surrendering your need to save your face, surrendering your need uh, to save your ego, your pride, you know, that's inward. Something incredibly powerful has to take place, you know, inwardly, you know, uh, in order for you to be able to do that. And that's going to lead you to have a radically restructured, unique, beautiful relationship with other people. That's the second point. You know, and what do I mean by that? In verse 44, Jesus says, love your enemies. He says, love your enemies. You know, some of us say, you know, that's really impractical, (laughs) you know, to love our enemies. That's incredibly impractical because, again, they're going to walk all over you. You know, if you keep living like that, you know, there's, how can you stand for that, you know? Two things. One, a Christian, we just talked about it, a Christian doesn't let anybody walk all over them. He's going to address, no one's going to address injustice better than a Christian. A Christian understands it's not just about, because a Christian understands it's more than just about what's on the surface. There's something so deep and core in the heart. So on one hand, you're not going to let people walk all over you. You're gonna, you're gonna, there's a need to address injustices. But number two, it's not impractical. In fact, it's absolutely practical. It's, in fact, it's, it's necessary to do this, to love your enemies. You know, if you're a Christian, you will forgive because you're going to say in your heart, you know, I was an enemy too. I was an enemy. I was at war with God. I did things wrong. You know, if I decide that I'm going to hold gru- a grudge against this person in my life, how do I reconcile the truth that God has forgiven me? That God has loved me. If I'm not going to forgive this person, you know, for the several things that he's done in my life, you know, then how do I expect God to forgive me for the billions of things that I do every day against him? How do I do that? We have to learn to forgive. Very tall order to forgive somebody. A Christian, you know, says, this is the internal part, right? You know, he says, why do I think so highly of myself? It's amazing. You know, a Christian, you know, a a non-Christian gets slapped, gets insulted, 
And the first thing he does is he turns around and he says, do you know what you just did? Do you know who you just did that to? But a Christian, he gets slapped, and inwardly he's thinking, why do I think so highly of myself? It's an amazing thing. Something supernatural has to take place in your life. I'm a sinner saved by grace. You know, that's going to take away the need for vengeance. When, you've been, when you realize, to the extent that you believe that you've been saved by grace, that's going to take away vengeance in your life. That's going to, need, that's going to take away the need to, to, to protect your ego and your honor. But what happens as, you know, think about it this way. What happens as a result of our methods of self-preservation? When you try to protect yourself, when you try to protect your ego, when you try to protect your pride, what's going to happen? Here's what's going to happen. You're going to remain vengefully distant from the people who've hurt you. Vengefully distant from people who've hurt you. You're going to trust people less as a result. You're going to become a lot more closed. You're going to be, that, that closedness, that bitterness, I mean, that's going to result in bitterness. It's going to result in more pride. It's going to become a cycle of trustlessness, a cycle of distance. And not only do you maintain these cycles of hurt, it actually works its way outward. You're going to start to inflict pain on other people. You're going to just start dumping on people. And you're going to start, you know, raging and show bitterness towards people. That's what's going to happen. So anybody, you know, who says, my gosh, you know, you know love your enemies, that's incredibly, you know, impractical. Think about it. There's nothing more practical than doing that. Because otherwise, what's the alternative? The corrosion of your soul. You're just going to grow in bitterness. You're just going to grow in anger. So if anybody says, you know, it's impractical to keep opening your heart to people, think, it's really impractical to not do that. It's really impractical to not do that. Spend, you're going to spend all your life, you know, pulling yourself into a tighter and tighter circle of people, just this small group of people that you feel entirely comfortable around, who you believe will never, be hurt, will never hurt you. And, and um, nobody, these, this small group of people will never do any wrong in your life. You know, I never have to be vulnerable again except to this small, tight little circle. And you know what's going to happen as a result? You know, uh, when you don't forgive people, you don't turn the other cheek. If you look in your bulletins, uh, at the page one in your, in your bulletin, you know, there's a series of quotes. I'm just going to read that second quote. Of course, C.S. Lewis, in page one of your bulletin, um, writes this in the, in the book, The Four Loves. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. He's saying it's hell. That's what hell is at the end. This dark, airless casket. That's what he's saying. Some of us are already down this path. It's an impractical, corrosive path of self-protection. You know, and Jesus is really saying, by saying turn the other cheek, he's asking, you know, aren't you tired? You can tell when somebody is heading down that path. The bitterness is very present. It becomes very visible. You try really hard to mask it because, you know, no, 
Nobody likes to be around bitter people, right? So you try very hard to mask it. But it starts to come out. It, starts, it has no choice but to come out. You know, the anger starts to show. The violence, it's all there. You know, we've experienced it. We know it. You know it. And Jesus is saying, I want to free you from it. Turn the other cheek. Give up your cloak. Go that second mile. Don't do anything on one hand that's going to inflict harm on them directly. That's the do not murder. That's the do not hate part. But on the other hand, don't do anything, you know, that's going to take away any opportunity, you know, from healing to take place. You know, that means sometimes we have to take it. We have to let ourselves get beat up. That's what that means. What's practical? Is it impractical to turn the other cheek? You know, I'm telling you, friends, it is impractical not to. You know, the only way you can ever have power to turn the other cheek, the only way you can have, you know, the power to actually go that second mile or to give up your cloak or to turn the cheek, you know, um, you have to have a radical new attitude, you know, a radical new view of who you are, yourself. You know, and and that's going to enable you to love other people. That's going to enable you to give yourself to other people. And that's going to enable you to become a servant. That's basically what Jesus is saying. That, you, you know, in doing that, we become meek. We become servants. Now, how do you do that? You know, this part, this is just powerful. How do we do that? And that's the vertical. A vertical healing has to take place in order for that inner healing to take place so that the outer healing is possible, is even possible. Okay? We have to have a radical new relationship with God. Only if we realize <clears throat> that we were enemies, that God could have punished us, and that he should have punished us, but instead he sent Jesus Christ to take our punishment for us. That and only that gives us the power, you know, to have a radically transformed view of ourselves. It's because, you know, and, and a radically transformed relationship with other people. Think about this. You know, this is, this is very true. When you've been hurt by somebody, you have two very immediate, instinctive, logical responses, right? We can retaliate. That's the do not murder, you know, do not hate part. Or you can withdraw, completely withdraw, right? That's also, again, do not murder, do not hate, right? Because you're resenting the person. You know, Jesus says do not murder. You know, don't even resent the person. In other words, we have to forgive the person. It's a supernatural thing to be able to forgive the person. You know, to forgive somebody is painful. You know, incredibly painful. I don't want to take away the difficulty or the pain for anybody here who've experienced any wrong in their lives, how painful it is to forgive another person. You know, um, and as a result, because if you don't do that, you know, as a result, you're going to withdraw from the person. You're going to fight back. You're going to quietly hate the person. You're going to subtly take jabs at the person. That's what you're going to do, you know. Um, but Jesus says, you're not off the hook. You can do all the things. You can stop doing that, but you're still not off the hook. I want you um, to just create a bed of opportunity, you know, to be friends again. And that means if the other person is resentful of you, if the other person is hating you, if the other person is striking you, you take it. Incredibly powerful. That's what we've said so far. You know, don't be self-preserving. It's incredibly painful. You know, and, and you know, but you know what? If you do that, if you actually do that, if you actually take it, you know what happens? The pain actually starts to heal. 
it actually starts to go away. The bitterness, the anger, it starts to go away. Now, that's incredibly painful, you know, because, um, uh, you know, um, it takes a tremendous amount of courage and tremendous amount of humility and a tremendous amount of strength, you know. Um, it's not weakness. It takes a tremendous amount of strength to be able to do that. You know, how does that grow? How does courage grow? How does humility grow in your life? Because you need both. You need both courage and humility to make yourself vulnerable to another person. You need courage and humility to address sin and say, I will not let you do this ever again in my life. How do you do that? You have to look to Jesus. You have to cling to the gospel. This is absolutely remarkable. Jesus, he came to earth as a man. He sees our hearts. He knows you. He knows every single wrong that you've ever done against him. You know the reason why you can't just let it go? You know, you, the reason why we can't just say, you know, ah, don't worry about it. I forgive you. You know, come on. If you've ever been really hurt in your life before, and I'm sure at this stage we've all been hurt in some way, shape, or form. Every one of us has been hurt before. You know deep inside an apology is not enough. A sin debt has been incurred. A debt has been incurred. And in order to decrease that debt, an apology will not do it. All right? You want that person to pay that debt off. That's what you want. That's why it's so easy to retaliate. That's why it's so easy to just inflict pain in some way, you know? But look at Jesus. We hold him a cosmic sin debt, a cosmic debt. Billions of sins. Every day in our lives, we're committing sins against him. And yet, he gave himself for us. He gave himself for you. Receive him as Savior. Receive him as King. And everything gets wiped away. How does that happen? John chapter 13. This is, I'm going to tell you two things, two vignettes of Jesus. If you've never heard a story about Jesus before, I'm going to tell you two that will stick with you. Look at Jesus. John chapter 13. The disciples have arrived. It's a banquet. They're eating dinner. Okay, they're eating dinner, and in the, during the evening, the course of the evening meal, Jesus, what does he do? He gets down, and he starts to wash his disciples' feet. It was considered the lowest act of dignity, of a surrender of dignity, because not even certain slaves were allowed to do that. It was unlawful, you know, for a slave to even do that because of the nature of the, of the way the roads and the conditions were and, and the condition of our feet. You know, that's why they carried around perfume with them. Here's Jesus. He's washing their feet. And, and this, is, this is remarkable, you know. Um, you know, he's, he's washing his feet, and what he's saying here is, there's nothing that I will not do for you. There's nothing, there's no level of dignity that I will not be willing to surrender for you. That's what he's saying. And now they're eating, they're eating dinner. And uh, one of the disciples, you know, they're asking, he, he, he predicts that one of them will betray him. He's literally eating with them, and he says, one of you are going to betray me. And the disciples are murmuring among themselves, you know, who is this guy, you know? And, um, and John, you know, the one that Jesus loves, you know, leans over and says, who's the one that's going to betray you? And Jesus says, you know, it's the one to whom I'm going to dip this piece of bread, you know, and give. And then he gives it to Judas, right? He gives it to Judas. Now we say, oh, he, Jesus must be speaking in code because he's in with John. So, you know, the one I give this thing to, that's the one. Get him. Now, you know, that's, that's not what he's doing. You have to understand the context. This is a meal, ancient Hebrew meals were shared among only the most intimate of friends. Judas was invited. 
You would never wash the feet of another person. It was the lowest act of, of a surrender of dignity. You are saying you are even lower than that. Jesus washed Judas' feet too. And the thing is, he, when he says, I'm going to give this piece of bread, you know what he's saying? He's saying, you're the one, but I'm giving you an opportunity even now. I'm giving you an opportunity to turn around. He says, what you're about to do, you can do it quickly. And he gives him this piece of bread. He's feeding Judas. The hand that is going to betray him, he's feeding. Do you understand that? He's saying there's intimacy. I'm going to give you an opportunity to come to the table and make it right. That's what he's doing. Remarkable, absolutely remarkable. You know, um, how much of a chance does Jesus give? Look to the cross. Look to Calvary. You know, because even with Judas, he says, I'm going to call you out. What you're about to do, do quickly. And Jesus, Judas is filled, you know, it says with Satan, and he goes. That's what he does. You know, juxtaposition of everything that Jesus is. But here, <clears throat> turning the other cheek, look at Jesus, beaten, mocked. You know, they, they say in the scriptures that they literally, they would blindfold him and beat him and ask him to guess who it was that hit him. They're insulting him. You know, um, taking the cloak, he was stripped naked, and they cast lots for his clothing. The shame, that's an insult. It's the same thing. The second mile, look at Jesus taking his own cross and laboring and journeying all, journeying all the way up to Calvary. That's Jesus. The insult, the insults that were hurled at him on the cross. Do you see that? And, and Jesus goes even further than that. He went from infinity and became finite for his people. He went to the cross all the way. Jesus went all the way. You say, man, I can't do that. Jesus went all the way. And when you see Jesus going all the way for you, crossing infinity into becoming finite to the point of death for you, when you see that, when you see that he's gone to the cross and you see him turning his cheek and giving up his cloak and journeying infinity for you and for your sins, then you can turn your cheek. Then you can give up your cloak. Surely you can do that. Surely you will have the power then to give up your, your turn the other cheek, give up your cloak, journey that mile for another person. The pain. Oh, the pain. But you're connecting, that pain is connected with Christ on the cross. You are literally experiencing the intimacy that you have with Jesus when you are suffering like that. Because he understands. No one understands more. No one sees more. No one knows more. No one sees more. Lex talionis, eye for an eye. The punishment fitting the crime for the perpetrator. That's your cross. That's what that means. That's our cross. The cross represented the justice of God. It was actually the opposite of Lex talionis for Jesus. You know, cursed is he who is hung on the tree. That's our curse. That was a curse that was meant for us. The appropriate justice, the infinite wrath of God was meant for us. And yet God, in his infinite justice, sent his own son to die for what we deserved. That's the gospel. That's the good news. For our crimes, that's infinite justice met with infinite love. And you know what he did? This is the ultimate irony of Lex Talionis, you know, the punishment fitting the crime. He took death's greatest weapon, death. Right? That's death's greatest weapon. That's what death uses to get every one of us. 
He took death's greatest weapon, death, to defeat death on the cross. The ultimate lex talionis on death itself had to be Jesus. That's Jesus. Punished for our crimes. The wrath of God meant for us. He didn't just let it go, right? He suffered the infinite justice, the wrath of God. He addresses the sin. But then he turns the cheek to give us the infinite mercy of God. It's God who kisses us. Infinite mercy. On the cross, Jesus sucks the marrow out of God's wrath. Suck the marrow out of God's wrath. Without any concern for his honor, without any concern for his ego, without any concern for his own dignity, for the sake of God's own glory, and for the sake of our lives. That's love. Do you know that? Does that move you? Does that get you? Does that that shape you in any way? Because if it does, it's going to give you the power. That's the power for you to be able to turn your cheek. You have to remember that. You know, when you're insulted, that's what's going to enable you to say, you know what, I'm not going to fight back. That's what's going to enable you to say, you know what, I'm not going to retaliate. Can you do that? If you reject that, you're going to be stuck. You're going to be stuck exactly where you are. And the thing is, you think you could just stop it there, that seed of bitterness will grow. And it will grow. And it will grow. You will not be able to trust anyone. You will distrust even the most intimate friends that you've got. That's what's going to happen. You know, but if you let the pain, you know, if you're going to suffer the pain and, and give of yourself in that way, the bitterness will go away. The bitterness will die. And you will experience the suffering of Christ and then the richness and the beauty of Christ as well and then the love of Christ for you. Will you do that? Will you as a church and as a people live that way and out there starting today? Will you do that? Let's pray.